I just finished watching this Netflix special on Bill Hicks, and some of you all know Bill Hicks, and others you may not be familiar with, but Bill Hicks was an interesting guy. He he was a comic that came up during the 80s with a guy named Sam Kennison. Kind of a weird side story about Sam Kennison was that my grandfather actually ran or was part of a school in upstate New York a Bible Institute there just south of Rochester and it was called Elam Bible Institute and they had an affiliated school there called Pinecrest and Sam Kinnison had actually attended Pinecrest and was a minister and if you really want to you can do a little digging online and find some of Sam Kinnison's early stuff when he was preaching and you can hear some of what would become that later kind of screaming comic and some of the uh, early preaching that he did. So anyways, back to the story about Bill Hicks. So Bill was an interesting example of of kind of a, a figure that looks like he had um, been enlightened at some level, or at least his his eyes have been opened or the the veil had been peeled back on reality a little bit. And and he kind of talks about it happened with him through the use of doing quite a bit of drugs. He did LSD. He did a lot of psilocybin mushrooms. And that kind of illumination or epiphanies experience or in religious traditions around the world, you hear it described as kind of a third eye awakening or... um, You know, even the Apostle Paul talks about seeing through a glass darkly. So that kind of cleaning of the glass moment has been described by a lot of religious traditions as happening in myriad different ways. Um, Sometimes you'll hear the yogis over in Hindu traditions and they'll talk about how they've achieved this through states of prolonged meditation, um, asanas, Uh, You also hear people who have achieved it through states of prolonged fasting. Uh, Before Jesus went on his ministry, he went into the desert and fasted for 40 days. Um, This is not even unique to the Christian tradition. The idea of fasting to achieve altered states of consciousness and mental clarity is something that is practiced in many traditions around the globe. and, you know, in, in ancient times, you know, you look at the Eleusinian mystery schools and other um, kind of religious traditions in the ancient Middle East, people would practice using things like Soma, which potentially was 
a brew using ergot or potentially some kind of a magic mushrooms or something like that that you would see um, in modern day depictions of Alice in Wonderland or in, you know, things like um, even Mario Brothers. You know, Mario Brothers takes the the red capped white mushroom, uh, speckled mushroom and, you know, has these powers. So this idea of achieving these states of insight is not new and it's well documented. But anyways, back to the story of Bill Hicks, it was, it was especially interesting to me when, because you see a lot of this represented in different celebrities right so i i had also watched uh today a documentary of mike tyson and mike tyson was talking about how he had lived this life how he had been this iron mike tyson and he'd gotten to the point where ultimately he had realized that it was all ego right and one of the the hallmarks of having achieved these states of awareness is the recognition of the ego um for what it is and what i mean by that is in our lives ego is something that serves a purpose right when we're when we're young uh we kind of are born into this world uh, we're born into this quasi dream like state. You don't have a lot of memories when you're a child, and slowly you begin to form this vessel, this shell that you're going to use to get through life, right? And it's part of separating yourself from the rest of the world and defining who you are. And you do things like you play in sports, you participate in athletic or academic types of competitions, and slowly you begin to build the vessel, right? This ship that you're going to sail the waters of life through. And just like you would see in World War II when people would decorate their fighter planes, they'd paint logos on the side, they'd give it a name, and you... You fly in this thing through battle you or you sail it through the murky waters of life and you, you at some level become attached to it. It's almost as if the vessel, the more that you use it, maybe it wins a lot of battles. I was on the USS Constitution about a week ago out in Boston and this vessel was 33-0 and 0, and it became known as old Ironsides because the cannonball would just bounce off of it. And maybe you... You have your own nickname, you know, it was Iron Mike, right? Old Ironsides, whatever it may be, you call the vessel of your ego something and you begin to think that it's you. And I I talked to another friend and hopefully you'll bear with me. I'll get back to Bill Hicks in just <laughs> just a second, but but you know, I had a friend that I was talking to again, and he was telling me about his experience as a uh, an Olympic sprinter. And he told me that he, two of his friends who he had trained with and known through life who were also athletes had, had killed themselves after their career was over. Um, and how difficult it is to transition out of that vessel um, of that you've created, the ego... And once you've run that ship aground, once your playing days are over, whatever it was that you thought you were for all those years, once it's on dry land, what are you going to do? If you think that that vessel was you, if you think that that ego was you, then ultimately speaking, that vessel serves no purpose. It's dry docked. It's stuck. And so you see it. Your life no longer has purpose. 
And that's the interesting thing about the ego, right? Is people fail to see that the whole point of getting that, when you get that ship to where it was supposed to go, crossing that waters, um, you're supposed to dismantle it. And you're supposed to repurpose it for, or maybe maybe there's times when you can use it again, right? Maybe you could pull it back out when it serves its purpose, but you, you no longer identify with that thing. And so in the, in, in the whole key, it seems to me, of life is that you're trying to um, understand the purpose that the ego serves. And there's going to be moments in time where you're trying to figure out your purpose in life, why you were put here, kind of your greater calling. And once the ego's trip is done, it's really your job to go pursue your larger meaning in life. And we kind of each have that role that we were given, these special talents, these gifts, and these opportunities to be that thing. But the ego is going to want you to keep building the ship, keep on painting it, keep on decking it out, right? Uh, And that's going to be the the draw, right? Away from your purpose. So back to kind of the third eye awakening illumination kind of moment. So you'll see people like Bill Hicks and you recently in the news, in addition to Mike Tyson, uh, who we didn't really finish that story, but with Mike Tyson, he was ultimately saying in this video what he did with Joe Rogan that he couldn't even work out anymore. Because even the process of working out, you know, would trigger his desire to look a certain way or or be a certain person. And he didn't want to go back there to that guy he was before. It was too much of a trap, right? So he had to even physically remove himself from activities that would be a slippery slope back into ego. Um, So Bill Hicks, Mike Tyson, even Jim Carrey has been in the news quite a bit. He talks about having this similar experience where he identified, ironically, he played in movies like The Mask and he would identify uh, with his his former self as a persona, right, as a character. I remember he famously said in one of his interviews that he was the light that shines through the film reel, not the film reel itself, right? And so uh, Netflix had another documentary on the other day, and it was a documentary about Bill Murray. And in these documentary, uh, in the documentary, Bill Murray talked about how, or others would actually talk about Bill Murray showing up at their parties and he would do their dishes while they were having a party or cook a lasagna or maybe jump in and play with the band and then he'd always, you know, whisper, no one's ever going to believe you on the way out. And when they did an interview with him, it might have been in a Rolling Stone article, or Rolling Stone interview, they they were talking to him about it, and he talked about how he slips in and out of these moments of of consciousness, of lucidity in the dream of life. And what he does is he forces himself to do these types of practices so that it will keep him present. Right, and what that kind of implies is this this fluidity that is involved in the experience of awakening, or uh, some people might call it enlightenment. Right, 
and it's I think the best analogy ultimately can would be that of the dream state. And so for some of you who've had this experience of being in a dream where you suddenly have a moment where you wake up and you realize that it's a dream, technically they call it lucid dreaming. Um, for a second, you realize it's a dream and then you can do things. You can you can fly, you can alter the dream state. If you really want to have fun, you could even ask characters in the dream why they're there, what they're there to teach you about. And these things can last for anywhere from seconds up to minutes or what seems like an eternity, um, depending on how well you're able to keep the dream state stabilized. But oftentimes in the dream, it's the drama of the dream that pulls you back in. You get sucked into the storyline of, line of the dream and then you forget that you were the dreamer, right? And you get sucked back into the dream. So in, in life, as with dreams, it's the same kind of way. And that's exactly what Murray was describing in the documentary, which is he, he said he would go for two or three days where he would have you know, work, whatever it would be, life, family draws him back into the drama. And using these forced moments, he could bring himself snap back into the present, realize kind of what life was. And and then that would bring about this clarity again, he would recapture that, um, that presence. And I had some friends of mine who I talked to, and they had attended something that was called an Enlightenment Intensive. And the whole goal of the Enlightenment Intensive, as far as I can make it out, was to kind of speed up the process of uh, of achieving this enlightened state um, through kind of different practices and techniques that um, the person holding the retreat had planned out. And, and it... It's interesting to me because it, when you read these religious traditions, the Buddha and other um, kind of illuminated masters who have been written up through religious history and texts, you always get this idea that enlightenment, awakening comes as a top of the mountaintop experience, right? Like it's something that you achieve and that you always will have after that, right? And surely there are people who've spent the time and maybe they live in that kind of permanent state of lucidity, uh, of realization that this is a dream. And I think more often than not, it's probably the case for many people that they they experience these many moments of enlightenment, these many moments of of lucidity and it comes and goes they snap in and out of the state and just like with practice with lucid dreaming or if anybody who's ever done any mindfulness or meditation training you know you can lose focus uh you your thoughts wander and you follow your thoughts and the reason you focus on things like your breath is to bring yourself back to the center and i think uh enlightenment as described in many traditions is probably like that you know you're going to have moments where you achieve it for a split second right 
Maybe it's a moment in a sunset. Maybe it's a moment in uh, through meditation. Maybe it's a moment through contemplative prayer. Maybe it's a moment through fasting. Maybe it's a moment through, you know, you know, different types of therapy or even, uh, you know, people in drugs like hallucinogenic and theogenic type of states. They'll you'll get there that way. Um, it's tough to keep those things lasting. Maybe a lot of times people start with a trip experience in uh, acid or uh, mushrooms or something like that and it gives them a glimpse of things and then they they can achieve it other states later on in life through through um, you know more sustained practices as well so uh, there's a lot of ways to get there that have been described but um, really I think that it might be better to think of it as a continuum rather than a moment in time um, and look for it in your daily life. Find those moments where you are, where you are no longer identifying with the ego, where you are present, where kind of time slows and stops. And so, I promised you I'd bring this all back eventually to Bill Hicks. And really, what I was interested in when I was watching Bill Hicks in this documentary is that. People were drawn to him because he was speaking the truth. He was speaking the truth about corruption, um, about hypocrisy. And a lot of times, you know, it's this kind of awareness that occurs in people's life once they've traditionally had um, third eye awakenings. They can see kind of the the dissolution of self. They can see a lot of the lies and and that have been uh, foisted upon them in their lifetime. But in... And again, Eastern traditions, you'll see that they say that you should not actually obtain the third eye awakening prior to obtaining kind of a a heart chakra awakening. And you don't have to believe necessarily in traditional systems of chakras and things like that to understand why this idea is important, which is ultimately when you start to uh, do work on yourselves, and let's talk about heart chakras are kind of like equivalent of doing self work right where you are you're healing from traumatic events in the chi- in your childhood whether that was um physical sexual um verbal abuse from parents or loved ones or strangers right or whether that was um other types of stunted development where you just got stuck at a point in your life because of some kind of a loss. You were grieving the death of a career or a loved one or something like that. Um, Doing that work, you know, unraveling those knots that are in your life and whether that's through psychotherapy. I have people, I know my brother likes to do work with martial arts. I've seen people do it all kinds of ways, right? But you've got to 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 get rid of those hangups, right? And so as you start to do that and, and your ability to love, your ability to feel comes back, then you would be ready for some of the more intellectual um, or conceptual openings that would happen later in life. And so with Bill Hicks, you can see that he's up on stage and he's preaching to people or or in a, in a comedic way about 
you know, some of the, some of the, the things that are angering him, right? And throughout his comedy, this is something that he became very known for, an acerbic kind of cutting sense of humor. Um, but he also was known for being a very heavy drinker and doing a lot of drugs and, and, and not to judge his life, but from all appearances, outside appearances, it doesn't necessarily always look like he was, he had fully worked through some of the issues that, um, would be at kind of that hot heart chakra emotional level. And when that happens, you can lead to a sense of, of paranoia, uh, where if you're, you'll see people who, who do a lot of going down of rabbit holes, conspiracy theories, and they might be able to read certain books or understanding the nature of the international banking systems or understanding the nature of big pharma or big food, whatever. And so they, they feel like they've been awakened, right? Their eye has been open. And nowadays there's a very, there's a lot of popular movement with around the idea of third eyes and, you know, decalcifying your pineal gland or, you know, using drugs as a way to open up the the third eye, right? But it's a temporary thing. I mean, you have to build a foundation, a, a spiritual, emotional, psychological foundation to build upon. And if you don't, then you can have all kinds of crazy experiences. I mean, we talked a little bit about it in the first episode with David Goldstein about how they, in the 1970s, there was all kinds of people using and experimenting with drugs. And they were having these experiences, these kundalini experiences, these awakening experiences. Experiences, but they didn't know what to do with them because they didn't have the scaffolding or the background or the history to be able to manage those um, insights that they were getting, right? And it can make you feel crazy. It can make you feel disconnected, untethered. And so uh, when I'm looking at the life of Bill Hicks um, and and others that we've talked about today, I think that the the takeaway that I had from watching him was, you know, you can open the third eye, you can you can have clean the glass right, see clearly all the things that are going on, all the mechanisms of control that are keeping people enslaved. But at the end of the day, if you see that as the the mountaintop, at as the goal in and of itself, you're going to miss the fact that this is just the beginning of the process, right? I mean, even in in the lucid dreaming state, the goal is not to become lucid. I mean, the goal is to use the lucidity as a tool to help to suture parts of you back together. I mean, famously, um, in books like by Dr. Stephen Labarge and Robert Wagner, they talk about how, you know, in the dream, this shadow self that Carl Jung talks about this part of you that you put all the bad stuff on. You don't want to believe to be true about yourself. You you get to face that part of you in the dream. Uh, it's the part of you that's chasing you. It's the part of you that's the monster, right? We've seen movies like uh, like Moana and things like that where she turns at the end and faces this monster and confronts the confronts these parts of you. And that's what a tool like Awakening does. It, it's it's designed so that you can see what needs to be done and so in those dreams you turn and you look at those those dark parts of you 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 decide that you're not going to lie to yourself anymore that you're going to be truthful and at least not bullshit yourself you can try to bullshit others if you want eventually hopefully you won't do that either but just don't bullshit yourself and and when you start to do that work 
um, that's when when the the lasting effects of awakening and lucidity enlightenment take hold permanently right and that's when the anger that you feel when you first awaken to the truths of all the things that you know really piss you off it's the whole old saying that you know the truth will set you free but it'll piss you off first well that anger that you have as you continue to do the work on yourself and you continue to see the the boundaries of ego dissolve and you start to see yourself in other people and you start to see the connectedness between yourselves and not only other people but other systems like uh, environmental systems and larger systems as well and and once these things start to come and be absorbed into who you are it's less of a a feeling of anger and it's more of a feeling of empathy and compassion um, for for those people and that hopefully will lead to fe- feelings of um, a desire to try to help right and not try to you know force open somebody else's third eye or wake them up by pouring um, buckets of cold water on them and saying don't you see right because and that's something that i've been guilty of in my life you know which it, it's not a compassionate approach i mean really the, the way bill murray talks about doing it which is you know being present with people allowing that genuine love for other people to be the mechanism of helping other people awake um and in and just living that out in your own types of life and for me that's the difference that i've seen when i look at you know how how it the suit of enlightenment or the suit uh, the suit of wokeness wears on bill hicks versus wearing on bill bill murray or jim carrey or mike tyson right it just hangs more comfortably on the people who've continued the journey so for me, that was my takeaways from, from watching these men uh, uh, on recent documentaries and interviews with them. And I hope that it's been helpful to you all in the process as well. There is a natural process of things. There's the Joseph Campbell talks about an invisible path that you wander around looking for. And for me, I remember going to Worlds of Fun when I was a kid in an amusement park in Kansas City, and they had these cars that were on the rails. And you would drive them for a little while, and then in the car wheel, it was like an old Model T, would bang into a metal rail that was between the wheels of the car. And eventually you came to realize that as much as you had these freedom, there was a path for you. And the same is true as you you begin to start the process by leaning into the the pain and doing the healing the trauma and stitching part together of you that had been separated whether it's family relationships or or internal emotional states whatever the path begins to unfold and the universe uh, or god will respond to these efforts because what you're ultimately doing is increasing your consciousness increasing your awareness of who you are by asking these questions about yourself, by asking these questions about life. And the larger system of of conscious awareness that some people might call God and some people might just call it a a kind of 
permeating field of consciousness that exists in the universe, it responds to that. It rewards to it. It says, hey, here's this little node over here. This is a person or an individual who is working on asking the questions. And the more that we give them things to work on, bring things into their path, the more they they will ask more questions and continue to do more work. And ultimately, that system of consciousness needs to continue to survive um, and decrease entropy. And one of the ways it does it is rewards individual units in in the system that are doing the work. So that's how your path will unfold. And it'll look different for each one of us, right? Some of us, it might start with a bang and then kind of uh, be a big eye-opening experience and then it will be a slow build from there. Other ones, it will just be a slow, steady taper as you grow along uh, into into a bigger realization at a, a point in the future. Who knows, right? But that's going to be your path and it's just your job to keep taking the steps. So... That's it for today. I'm going to call it a wrap Um, down here from San Antonio, Texas, where I'm sitting out looking over a bunch of really beautiful foothills. I hope you enjoyed this little bit of a shorter episode today. Uh, If it's something that you liked, uh, go ahead and subscribe. Uh, It would be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes so we can meet other people and continue the momentum going. Sorry I wasn't able to give you the episode that I promised you last week, a little bit of a work detour, kind of threw a monkey wrench into this, so this was a little shorter impromptu version of it, but next week we'll pick up where I promised we'd left off with my friend Nick, uh, the explorer of consciousness, and we'll talk a little bit about things like smooth muscle tissue research and how your nervous system ultimately is the vehicle by which you start to explore your consciousness, and as you begin through things like diet and exercise and um, optimizing your nervous system, you'll impact the ability for you to experience the different uh, levels of life that are, there are to be experienced and it has to offer. So I'm excited to bring that to you. Um, I will talk at you next week. And until then, who knows? <laughs>